As we've been walking through this last season of Advent, which is the time of the coming to where the community gets to sit between the first coming where Jesus becomes incarnate, where God chooses to be embodied rather than to be distant, and the second coming, we find that our imagination for the second coming, which historically the church has centered around December, to say that we must start meditating on, thinking about, anticipating the hope, peace, joy, and love, which will define the second coming. It's shaped our imagination. So in this time, in this season, because calendars have always been a part of us keeping track of holy times and thin spaces to where when we sit together, we imagine together, we can shape towards a more beautiful, equitable, and gracious future. But we take these intentional moments of seasons and calendars to make sure that we tell the sacred stories together in order to start reimagining what they could be for an expanding community. As we've seen over the last few weeks, where we've taken different passages from the scripture to be able to meditate on these things, it's stirred up different ways for us to sit between those two tensions, the two comings, the two advents, and to try to reimagine what it looks like in this moment to be an advent community. Uh, so this week, we will be continuing in our third week of the Christmas story series, where we are exploring different Christmas narratives and reimagining how they can help us picture the story of Advent and the coming of Jesus here on Earth. Uh, this week, we will be having a shared conversation where we talk about uh, the different concepts that Advent brings and what they mean personally to us as a group. Just when, like when did you first encounter the idea of Advent, um, and and how like how have you interacted like just how have you on a basic level interacted with it? Like I have to admit that Advent was always kind of distant in my head because although I was raised around the church, um, the only spot I usually heard it was something to do with some weird end time philosophy to where we knew things were going to rise, and so I heard about a second coming, a second Advent, and my grandmother who was Episcopalian. So she does nothing else with the church, but she remembers some of the high holy days. So to me, it was always presented as this um, strange otherness from within my own tradition, because we heard about it, it was distant, but it wasn't something that we marked time by. Like part of my uh, lower church model of uh, Pentecostal heritage is we thought only the immediate matter only the fresh, the last few months, the maybe the last years, that, that anointing that means God shall interact with us, which is very important in the season, but the longer historical continuation of all the people saying that we sit between the two comings wasn't real for us. We had no memory with only the immediate, and once in a while it bled over, we kind of co-opted the term from another tradition, like, yes, we heard this, it's something about the devil coming to earth and the book of Revelation, Daniel comes up somewhere in Advent. That sounds authoritative. Advent for me, I kind of have a similar background to Glenn. I grew up in uh, a small Pentecostal churches. Um, I also grew up in a uh, predominantly Hispanic church. And I, I'm, I'm not, I can't say whether across Hispanic churches all over whether Advent is a big thing or not but I just know for our little Hispanic Pentecostal church it definitely wasn't. Um, I was reflecting on it recently and I remembered that uh, so we went through many pastors at that church they were constantly leaving and going for different reasons and um, 
there was a season where we had uh, a white couple that came to be our pastors and there was definitely a lot of uh, cultural differences that we had to work through. Um, but they brought in the idea of Advent for the very first time for our community. And I remember the pastor's wife every Sunday would get up and light these candles and talk about some theme. And we had never heard of even the word Advent. I think the word Advent kind of felt like an intimidating word because it was just so foreign to a lot of the community. Um, but the, the terms that she would talk about, such as peace, hope, joy, love, um, those we understood. And it, honestly, I, I tuned out a lot because I was in high school and those words just sounded like words that you put up on bathroom decor. It didn't really mean a lot to me. This kind of that like live, laugh, love sort of feel. Um, and, and I totally forgot about the word Advent until after uh, my, I finished my bachelor's degree. I was speaking with an old classmate of mine and they were talking about how they were doing like this Advent devotional. And then the word started to mean more to me after I had learned more things. So I had a little bit of education to have that word kind of have uh, some weight. So since then, it's been slowly becoming a really beautiful way to experience the story of Christmas. Um, I've been recently kind of thinking about the difference of Advent as meaning uh, the coming of something. So kind of that anticipation or that theme of waiting, but also um, Advent is the word or meaning arrival. So in a sense, there's also a waiting that's attached to Advent, but there's also a focus of things that are here things that have come, things that are present. So I think it can have that future and present weight to it as well. I'm curious, in, in that meeting, because you, you mentioned a few different othernesses coming in, like um, from, from your own rooted community to the random white couple who's like, hey, we heard of a word. They're Pentecostal pastors, so I doubt they come from a high church model or somebody who celebrates the calendar. So more than likely, they heard it around either a favorite speaker or maybe Bible college, like, hey, I'm going to bring classic back. Like, what was it like in that meetings? Um, was it a, I didn't even know my own tradition kind of an, a feel, or how did it situate you towards the idea of your own tradition? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks, Glenn. Um, I think, honestly, uh, it, it, I impacted, I think, over the years, especially as I uh, went to school at different places. But um, it definitely gave me this strange feeling of not knowing that so many churches are going through this together. And I grew up in such an isolated community where it, it never hit us. So it, it seemed to be something that joined together so many other traditions and denominations. But for some reason, we were like on the margins of this experience um, or topic. Um, and I think the wife who presented it to the community, the pastor's wife, um, she, I think, grew up in more like uh, sort of traditional denominations like Presbyterian or Lutheran. I can't remember which. Um, so I think she had a little bit more exposure to it. But I think a lot of the people in our church also were people who had run away from Catholicism. Um, they came from families who had this very conservative Hispanic uh, Catholic background. And so they just really wanted to shun any sort of ritual or tradition to them that was just a triggering experience and they wanted everything to be the, the free flowing sort of um, uh, part that can be a part of Pentecostalism or what draws people to it. 
Uh, but yeah, it definitely was a weird experience where I felt like I was on the outside looking into the broader church that is doing all of these things that I just had no idea about until later. And I'm sure many people also have that experience as well. For myself, very similar to you guys, very, very similar background, um, coming from that Pentecostal kind of charismatic, um, not quite evangelical, but still fundamentalist, you know, that kind of background. And in our in our church, it just was never something that was ever mentioned. Like I, I think, but but I also think that it has to do with even society at the time, the like culture at the time, because I remember thinking, like I remember like thinking back from now, like from now till then, and like now you go to a store, they have advent calendars, things like that. It's like part, it's actually part of culture. Where back then we had a Christmas calendar, like so you still had the it was an advent calendar, but no one called it an advent calendar. Like I never like I didn't hear that term until I was in Bible college of somebody calling like that moment Advent. It was always like, oh yeah, like, uh, like you know, we had cultural songs about waiting for Christmas, like 12 days of Christmas, different things like that, um, these anticipation, but it was it was always situated in like, oh, this is a Christmas this, Christmas that, versus actually using the language of Advent. So I think, it, so I'm just, for me personally, the themes were always there and always present, uh, but I never actually heard like the, the naming of it from within the traditional church, like tradition or, the historical church tradition um, until I was in Bible college. And, and my first experience with that was, uh, I think it's the pastors are named uh, Chris Say and Rick McKinley. Um, they had a thing called Advent Conspiracy. And that was like my first interaction with it. And I was like, what, what the heck is Advent Conspiracy? And they, they basically explained what Advent was, was the anticipation of Christ and how Christmas has been hijacked by this consumeristic uh, version of Christmas where we we buy we buy ourselves gifts to celebrate Jesus versus um, giving gifts to those in need on behalf of Jesus kind of thing. And so they really were trying to flip that mod the model of what Christmas meant. And so as we sat in that Advent season, they were calling us to actually reimagine and reconsider. And that was my first experience with Advent. And so I'm glad that that was my first experience with Advent because it actually tied it to social justice versus tying it to just like rote tradition. Because at the time, um, as much as I, I like, I, I've really fallen in love with liturgy and things like that now, but when I was in Bible college, um, again, just coming from the more Pentecostal background that I came from, um, if you would say, Carl, man, we're going to do this liturgy for Christmas, I would have rolled my eyes and be like, nah, I'm good, bro. So I'm glad that it came about with this notion of social justice and being able to actually enact change because that was very much part of the Christmas tradition that I grew up with, right? Like, um, like my mom was a pastor and so every Christmas Eve, we used to sit, we used to, um, growing up, we, we would, we would be part of feeding, feeding people in need and things like that, giving Christmas gifts to, to everybody and, and things like that. So I was, I was part of this big celebration of what would have meant to actually set, like to actually do what Advent Conspiracy was advocating for. And so when I was, when I was, when that term was brought in, I was like, oh, that's awesome. Cause it really gave language to how I grew up. So for me, that, that was my experience with it. Oh, that, that's awesome. Cause I can, um, remember for me growing up around the season as Advent was almost interchangeable. Like I knew nothing of, of it. It was another name for Yuletide. Like, cool. We're getting close to a Christmas. Um, and it's interesting to hear that it within your tradition, since all of us share a tradition, but within your experience of it, the Advent season actually calls you out of to where you did dinners, you took care of where mine, we, um, in rural, um, America, we would go more isolationist like the Christmas time was for only the immediate family. Um, maybe you'd have a larger family dinner, but the kind of high holy moments of Christmas Eve or when you do the Christmas morning, those were invite only and you closed ranks as much as possible. Um, 
So it, it was the absolute shrinking in as opposed to reminding us that as the incarnation was, so are we to be in the moving out. That just interesting since we come from such similar backgrounds, we're like, yeah, we have none of that. We're like, man, lock the door. Someone might come in. Um, I was just kind of reflecting in the same way how I think it's interesting that your Advent experience or initial Advent experience led to forms of action um, and application. Uh, when the little Advent experience I had, it moved us to sort of uh, just conceptual reflection, like, okay, we're just going to think about these ideas and hope that peace, hope, joy, and love just starts coming out of somewhere because we thought about it um, and forget actually trying to bring those things into other people's lives. Um, so I really, I love that uh, experience and uh, sort of understanding of it. And it just makes me think of how I was rethinking last week through the Christmas story and just the idea that there were both strangers, friends and family all in that space. Um, and how, like you were saying, Glenn, that it often can lead to this sort of isolation and for me, just headspace experience when really it should be us going out and sort of in a very active and a way where we're aware of our agency sort of in this world. I think Advent should be sort of a renewal of our, a reminder of our agency and what we should be doing here just as Jesus came to give us more agency on this earth too. I like that flip, that notion of a reminding of agency because often when we think of the second Advent, we can enter into a passive state. It's kind of like what you said because I've heard it time and again. We're just waiting until the sun finally sets, Jesus comes back and everything is set to right. All we have to do is just kind of bide our time because we have the winning lotto ticket to get through rather than we're bringing those characteristics of the soon and coming kingdom here. And those characteristics look like a reminder of agency and engaging the populace around to be in an empathetic, sympathetic, responsive, dynamic situation within our culture say we're meeting needs and the fact that carl said oh yeah um, rather than buying ourselves gifts like how much of that is <clears throat> a unique um taming of the advent story to say what how do we celebrate advent we splurge on ourselves oh, it was interesting like when you had like I'm, I'm a very visual thinker so like, like in my mind like like it plays out like cartoons or or anime or like uh like sequences in a video and so when you talked about like the different themes and it was just something that you like that you guys would hope would kind of pour out of you in a sense right so you talked like that peace hope uh joy and love would just pour out of you and like initially my like my mind went right to captain planet you know what i mean and i don't like and so basically it was like the, the, the magi version of captain planet and so it was somebody it was like peace hope love joy together we are advent and i was so i was like man i really wish i could do animation because that would be so awesome <laughs> So um, I just want to say this. Thank you for inspiring that thought because it made, it really made my morning just being able to think about that. So I had to share it with everybody because it made me laugh. Well, it works. Captain Jesus, he's a hero. Gonna take unethical norms down to zero. Yeah, Advent conspiracy. Like <laughs> <laughs> this is my new picture for Advent. That's it. That's all I'm going to picture now. <laughs> So, yeah, all right, awesome, man. Anybody, any, any kind of final thoughts on just like your encountering, like 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 the initial encountering of Advent? 
Um, I would want to ask you, Carl, did, uh, after that initial sort of experience with Advent, did it change at all over the years? Did it, did you kind of encounter different ways of thinking through it that maybe sort of you had to wrestle with or how was that experience after the initial one? That's a good question. Um, it, it, it hasn't really changed a whole lot for me because again, it, it wasn't something I grew up with and I'm not very much, I'm not a very traditionalist type of person. So I don't really lean heavily on, on those traditions. So Advent for me, it's a beautiful thing that comes at Christmas and I love the whole concept of it. I think like, like the most engaged I've ever been is when um, somebody from a community we were a part of, uh, they, they went and bought the, uh, the Red Racer or Central City uh, Brewery Advent um, pack for beer, you know what I mean? And every Sunday we we, we sampled different beers as our way of leading, of, of waiting, of, of awaiting Jesus. And so like, that was like the most ritualistic version or liturgical version of Advent that I've ever participated in. But at the same time, um, I think Advent just gave me language to talk about the ways that I, that I, I was already experiencing this notion of, again, like peace and hope and joy and love. And these are things that were very much part of the tradition I grew up in. I just didn't have language to name it yet. You, you know what I mean? And so that's where I think Advent was really helpful for me, but it hasn't necessarily changed as I've gotten, as I've, as I've, as I've kind of grown with the term, with the exception of um, just hanging out with a few more folks that that love liturgy and things like that, and so they're really excited about Advent and you know like the like like lighting the different candles and things like that. And I'm like that's really beautiful, but it's just so far removed from how I was raised that I don't even remember like 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 the fact that I remember to light a Christ candle on Sunday is I'm like hey man that's awesome. I'm not gonna push my luck. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, <clears throat> and just from what I heard in your story, also one thing that. Is you unique to me for the North American claim that we're kind of the um, new heart to Christianity, like no matter what statistics really are for where Christi Christian populations are located, it's, it's how we imagine ourselves. And the historical notions you mentioned, like when we did that advent calendar from a local brewery, it, it came with one beer, we didn't have multiple um, advent calendars. So all of us who enjoyed it got like one ounce and we poured them off poured them out in the bottom of the little glasses and it was this communal moment it was still rooted in gifts but a gift that reminded us that life is beautiful worth living in community and so it wasn't exorbitant gifts it wasn't outrageous gifts it was communal bonding gifts as opposed to the north american style um christmas carol-esque we try to save up as much as we can to blow for this one time and have a Black Friday um, event that are not communal gifts, but all well, my life can will be better. It it doesn't it doesn't that's that's an interesting um, dynamic in my head as I was hearing you tell. It's like yeah, when we stepped into the liturgy, the ritual, the Advent as season, we were reminded of each other. Well, we we should jump into the to the different themes from from Advent, and so uh, we'll just we'll just start with peace. Uh, so peace, man, that's a, that's a hot commodity that I would love to experience more of. Um, when I think of peace, uh, it, it almost feels like a foreign word sometimes. Um, because for me personally, uh, peace is definitely a mental emotional experience. Um, I know peace can be experienced in an external way. Like you could have, uh, you could be in moments of danger or 
not have safety, but then there could be moments where that subsides and then you have peace. But there's also the internal experience of that. Um, and I, I think this year alone, just with the amount of things that happen, I think both the outside and inside have just been uh, a place where not much peace has been experienced. Um, and if you ever struggle with mental illness or any way, or if you just consider yourself an overthinker or someone who is very anxious, peace can seem like a very sort of uh, elusive concept that you're constantly trying to grab for, um, but your brain almost always gets in the way. So I think peace is something that's heavily, um, heavily conditioned upon your connection to community. Uh, I think peace is something that is experienced uh, communal communally. You can have sort of this contentment in being alone and being with yourself, but the experience of, of true peace, I think, comes when you not only have an external safety, but this acceptance and sense of belonging and the comfort that comes uh, with that. Um, there's kind of an ease your soul will slip into. Um, so those are my kind of thoughts uh, for peace. I know for me, just mental peace would be something that would be a great thing to experience after this year and just the chaos that we've all been been going through. I know that wasn't, that's kind of a sort of more raw or not as happy answer for peace, but I know sometimes that just can be the reality for many of us. Well, I, th I think your reflection on peace is is very timely for this season. Um, cause I think like on one sense, like, as, as like, like creation is experiencing a certain level of peace in a sense, because we had to actually like, like when we had to shut down. Right. So one, I think we're reminded of that notion of rest that comes with peace. Uh, and so just listening to the way you're explaining it, but, uh, but in the midst of that, in the midst of that piece, like we're, we're, we're a society that's so committed to busyness, especially in North America, that when we have those stoppages, when we have those rest moments, it's actually experienced as hostility versus hospitality to the soul, right? And so we're, you know, we're actually searching for, like, as we come to the season, um, when, when we talk about mental health and things like that, like, we're actually having to have another conversation around peace, even though like this season for a lot of people, um, from an external point of view, has been a kind of peace a season where we were we were thrust into peace um but then out of that peace came a whole lot of, like especially in america um with the just everything that was happening in america with like politically and socially and things like that you had this massive upheaval that that came out of that peace and so it's just i find it interesting that during this season um yeah during the season that like like just the way that it's playing out and 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 just what is actually needed now coming into a new season where we can understand a renewed sense of peace or like like, like i would i would say at least like what i'm hearing what you're saying it really connects to the idea of new creation for me right like like where we're being called into that we're being called to cultivate that kind of a space together and 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 as we do that we see new life emerge out of that peace so um as we step into this notion of peace, also I think we need to elevate peace a little bit because often we make peace the, um, kind of like when you're in a dysfunctional relationship, you think peace is just not active fighting. So um, we can have peace framed as, because we didn't have peace within the States, um, being an American, being raised in the system. What we had is less protest. What we had was um, invisible systems running as expected. So no one gets upset when peace means social narratives play out in expected roles. 
the peace then gets violated when systems are exposed to show inequality, unrest, incivility. And I'd say if we look at, <clears throat> especially what you brought last week when um, you showed the kind of deconstructing the Christmas narrative we have in Luke, he brought peace, but the peace was an area for human flourishing, not a place of no tension. Because at the very Christ event of the Jesus coming, um, being brought into a low social economic household, saying the king is here to the shepherds when they already have a king just 50 miles away from that um, manger scene. The fact that we bring it into a household and out of an inn and we root it within families and systems and say, this is peace because it's about human flourishing. So in the same way that Gospel of John brings us from the pre-incarnate into the incarnate reality, the same way Luke situates us not just in an incarnate reality, but in the least of us. We get this call towards peace, which is about whole human flourishing. So I think our lack of peace, our lack of ability to step into peace, to care about the overall well-being of each other has caused a lot of the struggle we have right now. Because we say, give me peace, but what we mean is, give me the absolute right to do only what is good for me. Do not demand that I think of the whole system. Do not demand that I think of those who cannot afford to take time off. Make sure that me and mine do not experience tension, and that is peace. When I think this is that reminder that peace exists to the degree that each person within the community can experience flourishing as opposed to just quietness. Yeah, I, I love where you're where you're going with that, Glenn. Um, but it's it's interesting because I'm hearing you, and I, I agree with what you're saying for sure. But I also I kind of look at it as like there's a certain sense of privilege to understand peace that way because I think somebody who was marginalized or oppressed, uh, like that doesn't feel like peace for them. And so they're they're, they're like even like the notion of peace is what's good for me. Um, I don't think that's the questions necessarily that, that the oppressed and marginalized are, are necessarily asking. It's definitely the way that the privileged within society understand peace. And it's almost like the notion, it'd be like the difference between like that Pax Romana, like we want the status quo because it offers us a certain level of, of uh, we are normalized, we are privileged. Um, and then where the rest of the world, the, the people who are marginalized or the, the two thirds world or however language that people throw out there, um, it's like we're actually looking for shalom. We're looking for a completely a complete reordering of society that allows for 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 human flourishing to come about, right? So I, I feel like it's almost like what would like where do we pull our definition of peace from? Is it from more of the Pax Romana type idea, or do we pull it more from the shalom and and the restoration of creation as as we move forward? Yeah, but I would say that um, at least what I said wouldn't. I could see how you would hear some notion of privilege there, but I can say I've experienced that within multiple different communities of um, different degrees of location away from um, the, the normative, that what they, it's the idea of passing. Like if I pass or go by the expected, which is why I played a little bit with the expected society norms. Cause when we have peace as it's good enough, um, I pass right now. So, um, peace is the lack of conflict again i would just say that's that's squarely rooted in a sense of privilege to be able to like it, as a person of color if you're able to pass in a society in a, in a white you know in a white dominated eurocentric society right you are you're still moving into a sense of privilege because majority of people of color cannot pass right so 
they're like it's still centered around privilege. That, that's that's so just someone like as a as as someone who experiences society um, from that perspective. Um, that's just how I heard it. Like I, I just it's like oh I don't have the privilege to actually ask that. Like you you know you know what I mean. So that, that's just how that's just how I heard it personally. So it wasn't it wasn't even a comment on what you were saying or or even how you were saying it. It was just it was just interesting because I agree with what you're saying, but I'm like also like huh that's just not a question that I think I can come to to the conversation with based on the way that I've experienced normalcy within society. Like normalcy has never been a good thing for me. Uh, I I think after listening to both of you, um, the phrase that pops into my head, especially after this year is uh, no justice, no peace. And I, I think even in this conversation, I, I'm recognizing how the idea of peace has changed and should continue to change for me um, in the sense that it, it really should be connected to some sort of justice. I don't know why growing up, I, I, I just never would have described it that way. But I think after all the things that we've experienced, realizing now that that peace has to come with a sense of of justice for everyone, that that true uh, that peace is an active word. We think of peace as like, okay, I'm in the forest. There's no sound. I'm away from society. I hear the birds chirping. I can sleep. I can relax. But that that's not what it, being a peacemaker is. Being someone who is advocating and fighting, um, whether it, it is for you or on behalf of someone else. Um, so I, I definitely think peace should be connected to that in, in our brains, whether it is from someone who, who is lacking that peace, lacking that sense of justice in their life, or the people who need to disturb the peace because the, the peace is it, inherent to the peace is it, injustice it's a false it's not real peace uh, i like that play you have especially for this advent season uh, that we often imagine peace as the escape from but that also comes with some of carl's critique of notions of privilege because it's only peace to live in the forest if <clears throat> you go there for a weekend it's a retreat it's not something you have to live in it allows you some escapism then we go come back to whatever securities we already have that you have you have that call away from or the advent invitation, which is to root yourself in. You can't escape because if God moved from the distant to the present, <clears throat> from the pre-incarnate to a manger, then we're also called to not just seek the forest, but actually sit with the people. All right, so with that being said, let's jump into to hope, the theme of hope. But the, like the theme of hope for me, especially like in light of Christmas, um, there was a story that I that I remember my teacher telling me when I was in I would have been like grade school I think grade six or seven and we were we were studying like World War One and they talked about like that one scene that probably all of us have heard like where the Allied forces and the German forces Christmas Day hit and they all they they ended up coming out and they played soccer and gave each other gifts and all that kind of and as soon as Christmas was over there was this notion of they went back to their respective sides and began to slaughter each other again right like that's I was like it was just always this really weird story that was told within the notion of World War One but reason why reason why I bring that up in the notion of hope is that <clears throat> like there's this call that I think there's this call there's this beckoning hope is this this almost like the like it's the invitation of the future the, the, the calling of the future calling us forward Christ calling us into the future with him and the reason I bring that story up is that in the midst of war in the midst of the chaos there was something that spoke to these soldiers that said hey let's put these things aside and, and it would have been 
interesting because it, it to me at least it shows a glimpse that humanity, even in the midst of war, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the the no like the the lack of peace that we that we can experience, when when we're able to actually tap into that notion of hope, like we could actually bring about something more beautiful together. And imagine if like that's something that goes beyond just a, like a cessation of, of hostilities for a day, but we could actually think about that in this notion of what does new creation, new humanity, um, what does a reordering of the cosmos look like in order to actually bring about justice. And so for me, at least like when I think of hope and I think of Christmas and I think of like hope in light of Advent, there's this notion of the universe, I, what, what is it? Uh, um, Martin Luther King Jr. is famous for saying that, like the the like the arc of the, the moral arc of the universe is long and it's bent towards justice. And he, I know I think he's quoting somebody else, but like there's this, I think like I think Advent reminds me of that. Like 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 there's this hope that even in the midst of all of this chaos, in the midst of like like 2020 has been a really crappy year. Um, there's still something hopeful that's beckoning us into the future. There's still something hopeful that is being projected from the future into into now. And 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 hope allows me to see it as hospitality versus hostility in this season. For me, hope is uh, definitely one of those abstract terms that, like, I know the meaning of it, but still, even trying to like define it and explain like what that is and and feels like for all of us is really hard. Um, I always think of it as like the thing that's used in stories um, where uh, it's the one thing that the villain doesn't want the the protagonists or the, the good guys to have. They're always, there's always some line where it's like, we gotta make sure that they don't have hope or else they'll win. Or I won't be able to keep my power and control them if they don't have hope. Like that's that's the scariest thing to them is is the good guys having just even an ounce of hope because they know as long as there's an ounce of hope then their their control or their agenda or their plan is not as secure, um, and I think that's such a beautiful a beautiful thing. It's like how powerful hope can be. Um, even just an ounce of it can can keep a struggling person going for a long time. Um, and it's something that I think we crave as humans. We, we crave this sort of um, having something to believe in that, that the future could be better, that there is a possibility for things to be different. Um, but I also realized that, and especially if you grew up in the church or in a lot of Christian spaces, sometimes there can be this environment where you're almost forced to be hopeful um, and that you're kind of expected like, oh, because you're a Christian, you should have this hope and people should see this hope. And that's how other people are going to come to faith because they see just how hopeful you are. Um, but I really think that forcing yourself to experience hope can be dangerous and, and forcing others to be in a place of hope. Um, I think it's, it's powerful when it's authentic and when it's, it's real. And sometimes it, it may take time to actually find that authentic hope. It doesn't just come automatically. I think it, we kind of just want it to appear because we have this faith. But sometimes I think it, it, it takes time for it to appear and grow. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, just, it was interesting, just a thought that I had based on, on what you were sharing, especially when you're talking about like kind of like the villain and the, the need to extinguish hope, because as long as there's an ounce of hope, people can keep going. and. 
I couldn't help but think about it from like the flip side, almost like with a, like with a, like a Marxist kind of critique perspective of like ho- like 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 religion is the opiate of the masses, and maybe to say like well hope is the opiate of the masses. It's the actual thing that stops people from rising up to actually change their circumstances in a sense, right? Like it's like it's like they can keep going and they can keep surviving, they can keep existing in 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 conditions that are are not ideal. Um, because they still ha- they have hope that those conditions could could change, and, and so so when you when you were sharing, that, I don't know why like that was the thought that kind of came in. It was like oh, like I wonder like if sometimes when we talk about hope, we actually use it as a tool of oppression versus a tool of subversion, right? And so like it's it's like I, I think of like the Black Lives Matter movement and things that are happening around us right now, where it's like 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 there's this hope that the way the government is now, the way society is now, it could change. Like so, a lot of people are walking into it, it's like well. Like we don't need to abolish the police. We don't need to do these different things. We don't need to change things drastically. We just need them to be better. And so there's a hope that they could just be better versus the whole system actually needs to be dismantled and and and, and, and a new system needs to come in its place. And so like on once it's like an authentic hope would be a new system, like a new world is actually possible. Um, a disingenuous hope would be, well, things are bad, Hey, they could change, and, and I could be I could I could experience the privileges of this oppressive system at some point, and and, and it's just interesting like that juxtaposition of like when you talk about genuine hope versus um, experiencing hope from some other kind of perspective. So it was it was just uh, I don't know why that 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 was like that Marxist critique that kind of popped in my head. <laughs> I was like, and I, I like that movement you drew, especially if you're looking back to uh, what Carl said, not this last time, but the previous, is that idea that. Um, Christmas showed a crack in the overdetermined system of war when they could pause and say, for this moment, we're not enemies, even if the next day you return to being enemies. And sometimes you're right, we do have hope as opiate, which is, um, wouldn't it be nice if all of us could be rich? Wouldn't it be nice if um, we don't struggle anymore? Almost going to that old Beach Boy song, wouldn't it be nice if we were older and we didn't have to wait so long? But we get that kind of thing to where it's, hope becomes this cute escapism again. But if we look at towards the real, um, the Christmas, the advent hope in the midst of World War I, you couldn't have that moment unless it was painted on such a bleak background. And hope to me, especially within advent season where um, at least from what the, the stories I was raised on was that God is embarrassed of you, that God, because of your sin, God has to get as far away from you as possible. And it's for your own good, because if he was in your presence, he'd have to whoop your ass. And that would just be bad. So he's escaping you for your own good, because you make him mad. Um, towards the, the hope of Advent, which it said that the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome. And that same verb of overcoming there is then later used, that by the desire of God, all those who would trust him would receive, and it uses that same verb of lambano for both of those. One is a grasping, overwhelming, the other one, those who are willing to receive their place because you were desired, that that is this, this hope that there's a crack in the overdetermined system, that it's not inevitable. We're not going to have to always march in the streets, even though we see the signs now that said, I was marching in the 60s, why do I still have to march today? It is not inevitable. There is change. And it is possible to actually affect the narrative to bend it, as Carl said, towards justice, towards peace. And that's the hope is those cracks in the system that always shows the malevolent bad guy in the movies who think if they can just squeeze tighter. But the hope is that it's not inevitable. 
that we can affect the storytelling. And again, we'll have to come back in a few years and be like, hey, here's where we told the story poorly. But the hope is that constant internalized tension that allows us to break system to put them back together, to be iconoclastic to our own sacred tradition to say, there's a more inclusive, wholesome, loving, sustaining, flourishing way to step forward. And this is why that hope can shine in that moment. That's good, man. Um, when you're saying that, I, like, like, just like, like, when, like, like with peace, uh, like when I, like, when, like, like, it depends on how we're defining peace. Like, is it more Pax Romana? Is it more Shalom? Like with hope, is the hope that we can, that we can like assume the privileges of our society or is the hope is that things will actually change. Like things will actually be overturned in a sense that there's something that another world is possible. And I, and I, and I, and I think that's just a really good, like not that everything needs to like, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm what's the word I'm looking for? Like creating like dualistic kind of thinking is not necessarily always helpful, but I think in, in this, in this way of thinking about it, it is putting up kind of different ends on a spectrum and, and, and understanding that like, as Brian McLaren would say, like we think that we need to slide to one end of this either end of the spectrum, but it's really up here. You know what I mean? Kind of like the Brian McLaren stuff from New Kind of Christian. What you're saying actually is like that's what I love about that whole play in the um, prologue of John. Like you're right, it, it links that darkness is the one that's coercive and trying to grasp. And you see darkness going throughout the narrative of John for the coming advent of, of Jesus is those who come as gatekeepers, controllers. Um, come at night because they can't let people see that they're asking questions of Jesus. They're the ones that are the soldiers of Rome because it actually is a Roman soldier instead of temple priest at the end of John. Like these are all the tools of empire and power that come at night and they want to control, they want to gatekeep and they want to grip to where the only way in is the way of reception. And so, like you said, if, if we only have hope that we are not affected by the um, Roman cohort, we get to control the Roman cohort then yeah, it's a bad hope because it's kind of, it's kind of like just delayed vengeance. But if we have a hope that one day we can make the Roman soldiers turn swords into plowshares, then there's actually a hope for a new world to come. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's great. And I, I would push it, I would even push that a little bit, I would push the pedal on that even harder, like the gas on that one a little bit harder and say, not one in one day is that like, we actually hope that Roman soldiers will turn, you know, their swords into plowshares um and and because we have this hope we actually do that now as well like we actually live in the midst of that hope versus it's just a concept that we think will come one day we enact that one day now which um yeah very much agree and i'd say i think that's the important reason why we still gather why we gather as communities why we gather as tradition is to remind ourselves that we begin heating up the metal to build to bend wrath towards flourishing to bend sword towards ways to provide for life and to cultivate food for others to convert power to presence i, I just i really like this idea of there being a good hope and a bad hope um realizing that, that hope is a little more nuanced than than we give it um it's like this idea of you having a hope that you'll win the lottery for yourself or hope that um you know, we as humanity could come to fight poverty and that there, uh, that people in financial, that there wouldn't be financial need with all of the resources we have in the world. Um, and I think that hope really, it does, uh, it is affected by what you 
define life to be and your standard for, for life, for humanity. Um, your, your hope is only going to be as big as how, how well you think people should live or what the world should look like. Uh, so you have to really look at what you imagine life to be or what you imagine life should be. And, and your hope is, is going to come from that, from those definitions. And if you don't think that, you know, humans deserve certain things, then your, your hope for a system to change won't be there because you, you don't need it. Um, so it's also affected by how, how much we are, are wanting and looking for out of life and what, how much we're allowing sort of even the things we see in scripture, the, the good parts to shape like what we imagine God's intention for this world uh, to be. Um, our hope is directly correlated with that. If I, if I had to bring um, our dialogue into one sentence for the day, I, I would say that peace and hope exist to the degree that we invest ourselves in becoming the community that facilitate the most justice, peace, and hope for those around us. That it can't just be an abstraction, that the whole gift of Advent is the becoming real in each other's lives. For me, out of the conversation from today, uh, peace is a reminder that uh, without justice, there is no peace. And that, that looking for peace can sometimes be looking for quiet, sometimes it is looking for disruption. Um, and as for hope, um, hope is something that is based on how we imagine what God intended the world to be and that there can be both good hope and bad hope, but when we have the authentic good hope, there is a, a power within that for our world to change. Um, for me, I think it boils down to asking these questions of whose peace and whose hope at the end of it. And so it's really important, you know, it's really important that we define our terms because if we, if we have the wrong peace in mind, then we're going to be saying peace, peace when there is no peace. If we have the wrong hope in mind, we're going to be saying, hey, let's hope for this. And reality is we're just actually pacifying people instead of calling them into a new humanity. 